You're listening to a podcast of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. We exist to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people whole in Him. Good morning. Take in your Bibles and let's go to 2 Corinthians 9. While you're doing that, feel free to everyone turn your cell phones up, actually. That would be fine. I want to hear all kinds of soundtracks today. The one nice thing is if we don't like say like flashing, please turn your cell phones off, you just know we might be in for a good time. So just be prepared. It might happen again. All right. It might be you. So I can turn mine off. All right. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 9. Encourage that we can hear God's word together this morning. This is not Chris's word. It's not the word from the elders. This is God's word. Um, I will read these verses. We're going to be reading verse 6 through 9, and I'll pray, and then by God's grace, I will preach. This is 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 9. This is God's word. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for this time to open your word, and we ask that you would use the ordinary means of meeting together for fellowship, of reading your word, of praying, and the foolishness of preaching to change our hearts. May we be worshipers who proclaim Christ to the ends of the earth, that you might receive honor and glory this morning as you work in us. We thank you, God, and I pray that you would do this work, not only now in this time, but also as go forth as we consider and meditate on these things throughout the week. Would your spirit continue to work? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Today, I want us to talk about giving. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. This is not the way it always goes, but I want us to talk about money. I want us to talk about something that's incredibly important. Uh, I read a story by Brian Cluth uh, about giving that I thought was very telling. He tells a story, and uh, I don't often do this, but I'm just going to read it for us. Here's a story. Leighton Farrell, who was a minister at Highland Park Church in Dallas for many years, tells of a man in the church who once made a covenant with a former pastor to tithe 10% of his income each year. They were both young and neither of them had much money, but things changed. The layman tithed $1,000 the year that he earned $10,000, $10,000 the year that he earned $100,000, and $100,000 the year that he earned $1 million. But the year he earned $6 million, he just could not bring himself to write out that check for $600,000 to the church. He telephoned the minister long uh, since having moved on from this church, another church, and asked to see him. Walking into the pastor's office, the man begged to be let out of the covenant, saying, this tithing business has to stop. It was fine when my tithe was $1,000, but I just cannot afford $600,000. You've got to let me out of or do something about this, reverend. The pastor knelt on the floor. 
and prayed silently for a long time. Eventually, the man said, what are you doing? Are you praying that God will let me out of the covenant to tithe? No, said the minister. I am praying for God to reduce your income back to the level where $1,000 will be your tithe. Now, I'm not sure if that story is exactly all true, but I do know that it cleverly captures the absurdity of a heart that's unwilling to give when they have much. I realize that I'm in a sensitive topic this morning. I realize that I'm up here telling you to give while my income is tied to the ability of the church to pay me. But I think that most of you will trust me to not mishandle the word of God, but to bring it to bear on our lives together in an appropriate way. Frankly, my motivation to preach this sermon has very little to do with our current financial position as a church. We praise God he has provided abundantly for us. So, why preach on giving? Why should we talk about this? Well, my job, and I'd say, when I say my, I mean ours as elders, my job is to equip you for the work of the ministry. My job is to prepare you to meet Jesus Christ, to be faithful. Considering what we learned together from Matthew 28 two weeks ago, my job is to make disciples, teaching them to obey whatever Jesus has commanded us. So I want to preach on giving because it is such an important part of being a disciple of Christ. The Bible's so clear for us, it's, and I suspect that many of us haven't thought very deeply about the nature of giving and all that it tells. I want to preach on giving because the Bible is so clear that the way that we use money is an indicator of what's going on inside. I want us to do this because I recognize that this is an important part of what it means to be a disciple. And I want to preach on giving because although it is not technically a means of grace, we will see that our cheerful giving in it, God pours out his grace on his people. And so it's perfectly right and good for us to consider these things within this series we've been talking through in the means of grace. But to understand what's going on here, I want us to take a look and back up. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 9 together. And I think you're going to want to read along. So if you, if you, don't, if you have it on your phone, that's no problem. It might be easier to look at a Bible in front of you in the pew. Feel free to grab one. Uh, but we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 together to understand what's going on once we get to these verses. Back in 1 Corinthians 16, at the end of the book, he gives this kind of parting thing where he's talking to them. And he tells the believers at Corinth to give money for the blessing of the saints in Jerusalem to support the people in the churches there. Let me just read for you 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 3. I'm giving you the historical setting here, okay? Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Paul has exhorted them to give. Now let me go forward to 2 Corinthians 8. If you look at 2 Corinthians 8, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 for us. He says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now this is where Paul is right now. He's been through this area in Macedonia. For in the severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy 
and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. When he says this act of grace in this chapter, he's talking about this giving, the collection they're going to make here. Verse 7, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So Paul is saying you need to excel in the act of giving that we have already talked about. Something has changed, though, along the way. I'm not really sure exactly what. We don't have all the, the stuff here. But we recognize that their giving had somehow slowed or perhaps even stopped. And Paul is taking this time to talk to them about this. Look at verse 8. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Remember, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. How will people know you if you have love for one another? the way that I have loved you? Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started, not only to do this work, but also you desired to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Now, let's skip forward to chapter 9. We're trying to give you a context of what's happening here when we get to these verses. Chapter 9, starting verse 1. Now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. He's talking about this giving, this gift, this act of grace. For I know your readiness, or his preparedness, readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia saying that Achaia, and that's the, the area of where Corinth is, all right, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident." So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Now, Paul is being very diplomatic here. What he seems to be doing is saying, I know that I shouldn't really even have to talk about this, but I'm going to. We need to, we need to talk about this again, this whole gift thing. I mean, I've even used your readiness, your preparedness to give as an example to talk to the Macedonians and said, hey, look at the people in Corinth and Achaia, they're givers. And Paul reports back and says, the Macedonians understood and that zeal stirred them up also to give. But since I'm not exactly sure why you stopped your collecting, I'm going to send brothers to you to make sure that you are ready to kind of help you arrange the gift that we talked about before I actually come with the other Macedonians. Because what really I, I don't want to happen is when I get there, 
it's this awkward, uh, you didn't put it together, and remember what you promised you would? And so he, what he's saying is like, I want it to actually be a gift, not like a debt collection, not some sort of exaction from them, but rather a gift that is willing. So I'm sending these guys ahead to encourage you to prepare the gift now before I get there. So up to this point, it's, it's pretty clear. Paul is saying, hey, you committed to doing this good work. You need to come through on your commitment. You need to do it. You've got a duty to fulfill here, so don't blow your testimony. Do the thing that you said you would do. But if this is where we stopped this morning, if this is where Paul stopped, we'd actually have something that would be quite uncomfortable. It could be argued then that what Paul is doing is just simply twisting their arm to make them give, right? We understand that. It could be said that Paul just made them do this out of guilt so they don't look bad in front of their friends or the other Christians. So what good is that kind of giving in the kingdom? Paul doesn't stop there, though. He goes on. He's going to explain this to them. He continues into one of the sweetest passages on giving that I know of in the Bible. And it's not only for their situation. What we're going to find here transcends just their situation to so much of what God calls us to in our giving. He gives us such deep teaching that we are not only convinced that we should give, but we're convicted that this is an absolute necessity if we desire to obey Christ and walk in good works. If I could sum up the sermon in one sentence, this is what it would be. Give generously from the heart. Not difficult to remember, just difficult to do. Give generously from the heart. In the rest of the chapter, Paul lays out the rules of giving, the results of giving, and then the ripple effects of the giving. See what I did there? I don't, I don't often do uh, you know, alliteration in my sermon points, but when I do, they roll off the tongue. Paul lays out the rules for giving, the results of giving, and the ripple effects of the giving. There, that's enough. Today, I want to just cover the first one, the rules of giving that he gives to us here. Next week, we're going to come back and work through the results and the ripple effects from that giving. Let's look at verse 6 through 9 together. He says this, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. There's the first rule. Verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or in a compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There's the second one. Verse 8 and 9, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. There's the third rule. First, you reap what you sow. Second, your giving must reflect your heart. Third, God supplies. Now, these may not sound like rules in the way that we typically think about rules, thou shalt or thou shalt not, but what we're seeing here, I mean, the second one is more like that, but we're seeing the first and the third are kind of these principles that are constantly at play in God's universe. These are truths. In a sense, we can rely on them though as their promises. They're reminders of how God works, but the response to them can be varied. 
We can understand a rule and we can respond a certain way or a different way. Certainly they will look a little bit different for each one of us. So let's take a look at the first one here. The first rule is you reap what you sow. He says this, the point is, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now we understand this pretty, pretty simply. I have a, a pretty ugly yard full of weeds at my house and a lot of different bald patches full of dirt only that we keep on uh, deadening over time. Um, lots of dead patches, unequal growth, not a lot of grass. Um, one day, probably, I'll spend a little bit of money and a little bit of time to make it look a little bit better. That would be fine with me. Uh, the day that I go and do this, though, I recognize that I'm going to need to buy enough seed to cover the patches that I want to make sure that they grow in, and this grass will come up. Now, it would be silly for me to buy one bag of seed that says that it will cover 200 square feet and use that bag over my whole yard. Just if you don't know, I have a much bigger yard than 200 square feet. Far larger than that. It would be silly for me to take that and expect it to cover my whole front yard, my side yard, and my backyard and have grass grow the way that it's intended to. If I go there and just sow a little bit of seed, no one will be surprised when only a little seed comes up. We understand this. But if I spend lots of money, I do the right things in a sense, I can expect, it's very likely that a lot of grass will grow if I do a lot of sowing. Now don't get confused here with the principles, the analogies of Christ's use. Some of you are thinking, yeah, Chris, but like the kingdom of God, you know, is like a mustard seed that is so tiny it grows to a whole tree. Don't mix analogies here. Bad, let's not do that. Let's stay with what's going on here in this passage. Let's not mix them up. He's not talking about the nature of the kingdom. He's talking about the universal rule of sowing and reaping. He's talking about the judgment scales in the eyes of God. God knows and answers the sowing that we do. Paul is most likely drawing this from Proverbs 11. Listen to Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched. The one who waters will himself be watered. Now, I'm not saying, I want you to hear me very clearly, I'm not saying that if you give money, that that amount of money will somehow come back to you in an identifiable way. And you're like, oh, that's the amount that I did. It came back to me. This is amazing. God must be real. He really did what I asked him to do. In fact, you actually may never be able to identify what God is doing as he gives you generous reaping. But I can assure you that this rule is as good as a promise of God. You and I may never know exactly where and how our sowing is being reaped, but the rule stands. And brothers and sisters, I would just call us to believe it. This is the way that God works. Now, the obvious exhortation as we think about this rule comes from the fact that none of us want to reap sparingly. I don't want that to happen. I want to reap a lot. Paul is not giving us this rule just to let us know that it exists out there. He's giving it to us to say, hey, so generously, so bountifully. There's no shame in seeing that God is calling us to seek reward in him. Sometimes we feel bad about that. We shouldn't. He's the one that puts this here. He calls to see this as a good thing. And by reward, again, I don't mean health and wealth and prosperity here on earth. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what he says here. 
if you look at the Bible, you might see a different word there in your translation that says bountiful, or it may have a little note there and it says something maybe in your margin, translated with blessings. Our sowing and our, sowing and our reaping may not always be the same denomination. What I mean by that is it may be our giving of money, yes, but it may also be of our time and our effort and our service. We may also be giving these things, these blessings, and we also may reap stuff that does not look in the same denomination. It may not be in money. It may be in spiritual blessing. It may be in relational blessing, or it certainly could be physical blessings. It's possible that God would bring these things, but health, wealth, and prosperity are temporal. They're only for this time. They don't go with us for eternity. This will become even more evident as we examine next week the results of giving. But for now, we need to see that the reward we will attain, the reaping that he talks about, will be commensurate with the way that we give. That's a sobering fact. It could be actually extremely encouraging to some and really discouraging to others. The rule stands. It is what it is. What you sow, you will reap. So you can choose to give sparingly, but remember, you will reap sparingly. So I'd ask us, as a, as a congregation, do we really believe this principle? Or maybe that's not the good question. Do you give with this principle in mind, in the way that you give of yourself? Does this promise control how you give? Does it have any bearing on the amount that you decide to invest in the kingdom of God? Now, I know those that are in here that, you know, maybe we would consider ourselves financially smart. We believe that if we take our money and put it wisely into the marketplace, that there will be a certain outcome for it. If you save and invest maybe a little money in the market, you expect a little more coming out of that at the end of your time after you invest it. If you save and invest a lot, your hope is on the other end that it will grow and that there will be a great harvest in a sense in the marketplace. We understand and we expect that reward here when we talk about money. You and I need to think clearly about how God works and give bountifully so that we might reap bountifully according to God's standards. So are you giving your money time and service? Is this the rule that you have in your mind as you do so? I'll move on for a moment. This isn't exactly only a logical decision either. We understand this. This isn't something that can only happen on a spreadsheet. The Bible tells us where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Jesus said in Matthew 20, 6, 21, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. But Paul brings this really incredible thing up because we think that, well, then if I put this money out there, then apparently my heart's there and I'm good to go. Paul says something different here and he explains, ah, 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 don't think so quickly. The Pharisees, if you remember, they tithed mint and dill and cumin. And he says there's something bigger on the line than just that. What we see here is that Paul is going to tell us that it is possible to place our treasure in the offering plate and somehow still hold on to it for ourselves. It's amazing. This is what happens when we give begrudgingly. Second rule your giving must reflect your heart. Oh man, is this hard. Your giving must reflect your heart. In verse 7, Paul says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly 
or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul says that simply writing the check doesn't seal the deal. Simply having money go out of your account isn't enough. He's saying that it's possible to give money away that your heart doesn't really want to give away. Oh, you'll do it, but you don't want to. Kind of like that little child, right? That's like, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. You know how you can tell when you've done this? You're reluctant. You worry about those gifts. You feel like what you have to give is, is something that's expected of you, so you have to do it or else you won't be a good Christian. You want others to see what you've done so that you can have some sort of reward that they think that you've done a good thing for the kingdom of God. In short, it's the exaction that he talked about back in verse 5, like it's some sort of a debt. Listen, very few people that I know are excited about paying their electric bills. Why? Because they know what they signed up for. They used electricity. They expect to pay the bill. It's part of the deal. Paul's saying that gifts are something far different. It must be something that we decide to do, that we would seek after God and that we'd be ready to do without grumbling or as some sort of compulsion thing that's driving us to do so, as if it's some sort of bill that we pay God. Do you, do you think God needs our money? No, the heart here is the gift that understands who God is. Paul's saying this gift must be something that we've decided to do. This gift that, that doesn't just look for the praise of man. It doesn't go on grumbling. It's a gift that we can say, honestly, I want to do this. I want to give this freely with no strings attached, Lord. I want to give out of the heart that you have given to me without someone twisting my arm. And then he caps it off with this incredible phrase, God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, God is not pleased with an exaction. Oh yes, you paid the bill. It's not what I'm pleased with. Your joyless, coerced obedience brings me no pleasure. I mean, let's think about this for a moment. Let's just think that you received a gift for your birthday. And you, it's a nice gift. It's very nice. You like it. And the person who gave it to you is all smiles. And yet you have somehow the power, let's say, to hear their thoughts to feel their feelings. And when you do so, they give you this beautiful gift and inside, they grumble. Inside, they say to themselves, I hope they appreciate it. They have no idea how much money I spent on that gift. Perhaps inside their mind is something more like, I hope they appreciate it. I'm not going out to eat for the next two months to make sure I could pay for that gift to give to you. If you could hear that from a friend or a family member, how'd you feel about that gift? Is it a gift of love? What does that mean about the value of you? This person is far more concerned about what's going on in their life and like me, 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 and getting the credit for giving you something. Do you understand here? We talked about a, a cheerful giver. He's talking about you're all in. He's saying it's gotta be real. This is the heart that says, I want to give because I understand that my God is a giver. God didn't reluctantly send his son to the cross, but in great love, he gave us his only son. This is what we're called to do. Not out of compulsion, not out of some sort of debt we need to pay. 
How offensive to a God who gives liberally. So when we talk about giving here, Paul's making it very clear. He's not so concerned at counting the dollar and cents at the end of the day. That's certainly part of it. It's going to be the evidence that shows what's going on inside of you. But it must be connected to what's really going on in our hearts as we respond as cheerful givers. God can see right through our external gifts, way down deep into our hearts. And a reluctant heart, a heart that does not find joy in giving, does not please him. Paul tells us he loves the person who actually loves to give, who is delighted to give what he can. Now, I want to be clear about this. This doesn't mean that as you learn to give, and as we discipline ourselves to give, and as we take those funds, there's not that thing inside of us that's like, ooh, that's a lot of my money that I'm giving away. I wonder what will happen. That's not to say that that doesn't happen to us, but it is to say that we recognize in obedience and in joy to God, I can cast that care on him and instead I can worship. I can trust him as that goes out. We recognize that the walk of faith is always back and forth, but we see here that he calls us continually to submit to him and desire to have the heart that he has. That's why in chapter eight, if you remember, he references Jesus, the ultimate giver, the one who gave himself for the poor to be enriched. I mean, Jesus gave his resources, although he had very few of them, his time, his effort, his love, and ultimately himself for his church. And he did so without reluctance. He did not do so with compulsion, but from the heart. In this way, he did not give begrudgingly, but Jesus was the ultimate cheerful giver. This is one of the reasons that we don't require any of the members at Cornerstone to give a certain amount of their income. We recognize if we did that, we might have some sort of uniformity, but my goodness, we might be causing all kinds of other problems here. What we want to do rather is look to what God has called us to do. Look at these rules and give out of a heart that loves God, one that is truly cheerful, that wants to obey, not one that is done doing so out of a pang of a debt of some sort. We desire to bow before our Lord together and obey his commands in these areas without compulsion or any arm twisting. We desire to follow Jesus and give generously from the heart. So the first rule, you reap what you sow. Second rule, your giving must reflect your heart. The third rule, God supplies. It's huge. This is the foundation of all these rules. Look at verse 8 and 9. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Okay, if you were all concerned practically, because all of us have to, at the end of the day, like balance a checkbook, make sure we're feeding our families and do all these different things, that's right. But if you're concerned practically that you might not have enough to give generously, the cheerful heart, you need not worry. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 29 through 32. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whew. Praise God. 
He would do that. A Christian who gives generously from the heart will be supplied with all that they need. Verse 8 makes it very clear that God is able. It's the same word that we use. He is powerful to do. He has the ability and capability to make grace abound to you. When he says grace here, it's in a sense a short form to describe all types of gifts, physical things, mental and social things, relations, and spiritual ones, of course, all of these different things. He doesn't limit it to only the physical. God is able to supply everything that you and I need. I mean, look what he says. If you're struggling with this today, look what he says. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times. Just, just make sure we understand Nothing limits God. He shows that he will take care of his own. His holy generosity has no limits. This passage tells us that Christians who give generously from the heart will be supplied with all they need to do all that God requires of them. Now, wait a second, Chris. You just added something there. Well, I didn't add it. The verse says it. So let's look together. A Christian who gives generously from the heart will be supplied with all that they need to do all that God requires of them. He says this, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. What is your stuff for? What is everything God has given you for? For just to be wasted upon our own lusts and have a nice life? Does he not tell us that he will supply everything we need for us to abound in good works? Why did I add that? Again, there's a purpose statement here that we cannot miss. He says that he abounds in supplying everything that we need so that we can abound in every good works. Not a mistake there. He's putting these things together. The purpose of having resources and money and gifts and talents is to do good works. Now, we know this already from Ephesians 2.10, right? Stacy preached this a few weeks ago. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I want, I want to be honest here. Humanly speaking, I would love to tell you that every time that you give generously the right way and cheerfully, that you're going to have enough food and enough clothes and enough housing places to, to be in, and you're going to be safe from all kinds of things. I'd love to tell you all these things, but the truth is, that's not what the promise is here. If it were true, think about this together. Obedient, giving Christians would never die from starvation. They would never die from exposure. They would never die from harm. If you know about the rest of the world, obedient Christians who give of themselves do die of starvation. They do die of exposure, not to mention persecution. So it's incredibly important, perhaps of life and death, for us to understand this importance. What he's saying here. This is far from a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. That's not what he's calling us to here. This is far from that. He is not guaranteeing us good jobs. He's not guaranteeing us healthy families. He's not guaranteeing us obedient children. He's not guaranteeing us lots of nice things for our journey here on earth. He's saying that God is able to make all grace abound to us so that having all that we need in his plan, we are able to do abundant good works. 
I mean, this is a cool statement. The guarantee, if there's a guarantee here, this is it. The guarantee is that we have a, a ton of stuff to do a ton of good works. That's what he's talking about. I've given you what you need to do a ton of good works. Like, I, I won't limit you to what you can actually do. And therefore, going back to that first principle, I won't make it so that you can only sow sparingly. I will give you everything that you need so that you can sow generously and bountifully. That's what he calls us to. Now, that, of course, might be money. It might be energy. It might be health. It might be perseverance that he gives us. It might be increased faith. It might be patience. I mean, what has God called us to? And then he shows us from the Bible what he means by this. He shows us that this has always been the attitude of Christians who have been given grace. If you see that little quote in your Bible, it's from Psalm 112.9. And what he's doing here, this verse, I thought, this verse isn't actually about God. I thought this was a verse about God. And if you go back and read Psalm 112, which you all should do, it's incredible. It's so good. Psalm 112 is not about God. Obviously, it's going to give praise to God. But what he's talking about here is the man who fears God and delights to do his commands. That's the description here. Verse 9, as it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. In other words, he's quoting the scriptures saying what people who have been given much grace do is give to the poor. They freely give out. They understand that what they have was so that they could bless others. This is a description of a believer using his God-given resources to give support to the poor, to love others the way that God has loved him. And what is established is his righteousness. Now, we're going to get more to that next week. It's also incredible. His God-wrought character shines forth and lasts forever. And how does this happen? Where does it come from? Well, ultimately, it's not your job. It's not good fortune that happens to you. It's not somehow that you were to dig deep inside yourself and find that. Ultimately, we know it is God who supplies so I'll ask you, do you actually believe this? Is it true that God will supply for you? Does this rule ground you in complete confidence that you can give without concern, knowing that he will take care of your every need so that you may do good works? Do you trust the one whose plan may not be the plan that you might have for yourself, and therefore you're willing to give what you do have? Do you happily comply with God's call to you to graciously give to others knowing that God will continue to supply for you, that he is a good God? Now, I'm through with this passage. Let me bring it home for us today. There's a spectrum represented here right now of folks ranging that some of us don't give anything at all and some of us give generously regularly. I recognize that and everything in between there. On this subject, my goal today isn't to get us to all the same place. That's not my goal. But I think if we were to do that, we would be forming some sort of legalism here. What I'd like to see happen instead is that each and every disciple, does it love Christ, would take serious the call to give. And I ask you, will you obey? Some of you already have been giving generously from your heart. I know some of this. I don't even know all of it. 
but I know some of you give generously from your heart. And we praise God for what he is doing as he works in you. He's encouraged, I would encourage you to believe the promises that God will supply your every need. Brothers and sisters, continue in this good work. He promises that he will help us that would be willing to sow generously or bountifully that we also will reap bountifully. So be encouraged that this is God's faithfulness to produce good works in us. Praise him for this wonderful work in sinners who are redeemed by Christ. Some of you are giving something though. But if you're honest, it's under compulsion. Some form of reluctance back and forth in your own heart. You write the check, you give to others, but there is that part that's held back. You're not a cheerful giver. The answer, by the way, isn't stop giving. We know the verse doesn't say, God loves a cheerful non-giver. It doesn't say that. What if God was a cheerful non-giver? Where would we be? The answer isn't to not give. Rather, I'd encourage you to repent of your joyless disobedience. Instead, although we think it looks like obedience, and ask God to change our hearts as we constantly wrestle back and forth having integrity, having our heart actually match what's going on on the outside. It's incredible that it can go both ways. I mean, James' whole argument is that if it's not coming out in actions, that you're a phony. But it seems here that we could write a check and still be a phony. So I'd call us rather to repent and have a heart that would know and love God and be as he is, a cheerful giver. Some of us are not giving at all. And there may be some somewhat legitimate reasons for keeping things back and not generously giving. But may I remind you that these three rules of giving apply to the poor just as much. That's an astounding statement. I recognize that. Remember what we read in 2 Corinthians 8. Listen to this, verse 2 through 5. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor, the grace, in a sense, of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Maybe you're a student and you just don't make very much money. Maybe you're a young married couple and you're just trying to scrape by. Uh, maybe you're single and you just don't have much security. May I encourage you to take seriously that you will still reap what you sow. It's still true. You are to do so with a cheerful heart. And then ultimately, can I assure you that God will supply. We know this to be true. I'd encourage each and every one of us then not to compare ourselves with each other. That's a bad path. It's not going to work. But rather, consider these rules and obey God. First, reap what you sow. Second, your giving must reflect your heart. And third, remembering that God supplies. This grace is for us as we fear God and live according to his rule. So may the Lord help us as we use our resources, all of them, generously giving them from a heart as we seek to abound in every good work. Let's pray together.
But Lord, we ask that you would empower that which you have called us to do. In other words, you're not an evil taskmaster. Lord, you call us to obey as children and supply every grace so that we might abound as obedient children. I pray that you teach us this lesson. I pray you encourage the hearts of the saints that they would know that you will supply. I pray that you would help us who struggle to give with a cheerful heart or don't give it all. Lord, that we would be willing to look at the word, recognize a cheerful giver who you are, and respond in kind. Thank you for your grace, and I pray that you would grow us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're not a part of a gospel-centered church in your city, we encourage you to find and belong to one. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.